I do not think that the bank or pretty much any, almost any government in the world or institution with very few exceptions have this role what I'm talking about. It's a scientist, not for the knowledge, but for the skill. It's someone who flies around or is, is asked to be in different parts of the company to solve with the skills, not with knowledge. Yes, there are scientists working on urbanization in the World Bank, but I want that urbanization scientist to work on human development, to work on healthcare, to work on other things, because that's what is what we talk about, is the skills-based value of a scientist. Welcome to the Degrees of Freedom podcast, an eight-part series exploring the unconstrained possibilities of scientists working in impactful spaces outside of academia. I'm your host, Chris Hazencote. In this fifth episode, I got to catch up with Bruno Sanchez Andrade Nuno. He's a principal scientist at Microsoft's AI for Earth, which, among other things, is working on building a planetary computer for sustainability applications. Bruno got his astrophysics PhD from the Max Planck Institute, and he has used his science skills to work everywhere from Mapbox to the World Bank to his job now at Microsoft. I really enjoyed this conversation. When you look at Bruno's career, it's a string of bright, shiny lights. And by that, I mean stints at cool international organizations and companies, fancy titles, and lots of impactful work in tech, sustainability, and international development. But Bruno's super candid in the interview on sharing the struggles he's had to deal with along the way too, the leaps of faith he has made in finding the path that's right for him, and how his career has been a constant search for finding all the ways he can to define impactful scientific work. He also, by the way, gives some great interview advice to scientists venturing outside of academia on how to think from a potential employer's perspective, uh, especially from the private sector. And funnily enough, I, I had no idea when I asked Bruno to sit down with me but as it turns out, he's actually written a book on the topic of figuring out how to use your science for impact. So he was a perfect guest for the podcast. His book's called Impact Science, The Science of Getting to Radical Social and Environmental Breakthroughs. It's linked in the notes, and definitely check it out. As always, a reminder that all opinions and ideas expressed by my guests and myself in this podcast are our own and don't reflect those of any organizations we are affiliated with. Now, on to the conversation with Bruno. Hi, Bruno. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Kristen. It's a pleasure to be here. So how are things at Microsoft? Could you tell us a little bit about your job and what Microsoft AI for Earth is? It's it's going amazing. I I love it. When I applied for this job, I, I kind of knew what it was supposed to be. And now that I'm there, it's, it's that and much more. Basically, we are we are using AI to help in environmental sustainability, including climate change, including problems with water availability, with agriculture, uh, with biodiversity collapse. So it's it's the right time to do these kind of things and the right approach because we are trying to work very closely with the science, but then also uh, Microsoft being a large corporation also to figure out how to have more stakeholders deploy the solutions. It's key to get to where we want to get in 2030, not only to have the right science, but also to implement it. And that's exactly what we're trying, we are doing at, at this position. So it's, it's going amazing. And I believe the effort involves a lot of access to open data as well. Yes, yes, we are building. So we, we've done like, well, they've done like three years of grantees and helping scientists. And most of that work 
is open source, helping make better code and put uh, better open data. But now that we are building the planetary computer, um, substantial part of it, if not most of it, is all based on on open source for many reasons, which we can talk about it. But yeah, it's it's also exciting because I've been part of those communities from other sites with other hats. So now it, everything comes around in that sense. So it's really an exciting moment. Awesome. So I want to dive into your career path in a lot more detail because you've done a lot of different things in various sectors. Um, and I want to hear how it connects with your, your science background, especially your, your uh, astronomy PhD. But maybe the best place to start is how you grew up. You grew up in a rural area of Spain. Is that correct? And, and what was that like? I, I grew up in Spain in the north coast called Asturias. It's a very green um, rural place in general, but also I grew up in a in a hamlet, I would say. It's a little village of like 10, 10 houses. And you can imagine that um, growing up there basically means getting outside as much as possible, playing with your dog, going to the forest, and just, just a lot of mischief in nature, which was, it was great. It's a, it was a really good childhood. And is that when your love for astronomy grew, or when did that come about? You know, I don't know. I do know, and my mother has told me often, that even before I knew how to read, I knew I wanted to be an astronomer. He he tells me that we were working once in the city and she saw a poster of an astro astronomical conference, like a science outreach, but I mean, not for kids that don't know how to read. And then I demanded to go to that conference. I'm pretty sure I didn't understand much of it, but yeah, I've, I've, I don't know why. I've always loved science and I still love science. <laughs> and it, it stuck with you all the way through through university, which is what you studied, uh, I believe, both in the Canary Islands and also uh, elsewhere yeah. on the mainland. I Yes, I, it still stacks with me. I love astronomy and astrophysics and I love science in general. I, I studied physics in Oviedo, in university there, and then I went to the Canary Islands because it's the best place have really good observatories for the stars and the sun. I did my PhD on the sun. And then I went to Germany to do, to do the uh, PhD on solar physics. And then I continue with a postdoc and then I left the science career then. But yeah, it's even though I left research, which for a lot of people would understand I left science, I did not. And I guess that's part of the podcast we're talking about is I, I consider myself a scientist and just not a researcher. Yeah, yeah. And actually... Speaking of that trajectory, and then uh, when you did your postdoc, as I understand it, you actually also did a fellowship, a Merzion fellowship, while yeah, you're in the postdoc. Is that right? So, when as an Spaniard in in the U.S., I had my like visa, like J1 visa, for those who probably know what it is, if they are the scientists, foreign scientists in the U.S., it's a visa that allows you to to do research or be a um, professor at, at universities for doing research. It does not allow you to work. And at the same time, in the U.S., has a several fellowships for science policy. One of them is the Mirsayan. And the Mirsayan, which is the National Academy of Sciences, allows people, foreigners, to do these fellowships. So it was the only one I could apply for. And I did apply it at the, basically after a year and a half of my postdoc. And already there, my I, because my visa was with my postdoc, my, my postdoc advisor had to agree to let me go. And, and he didn't really appreciate that 
like it was a bad move for a researcher because it's time lost for publications. But that was when I started to change my career path from researcher to something else, thanks to the Mircean Fellowship. I was going to ask that if there was any any issue with doing that concurrently with a postdoc or or if that was supported uh, by your by your advisor, um, what what actually pushed you to decide to do to do that that fellowship? Yes, he my uh, he had to agree to let me go basically, um, but while he was still legally uh, responsible for me or immigration wise responsible for me, so it was a big deal, and I very much appreciate him, and I have. He was a. Uh, I mean, he didn't agree with that position. It doesn't mean that he didn't support me, which is which is uh, speaks very highly of him. Actually, I did know that I wanted to leave academia before when I was finishing my PhD. I loved science, as I said, but I felt it was it was not the whole of what I liked. There was something missing that I couldn't let go. Outreach was part of it. Explaining science, complicated science to the public, I think is very rewarding, but. I wanted more of that. I didn't know what it was. So I knew that I wanted to leave academia, but I also knew that having done a PhD at the Max Planck, which is a highly, highly regarded institution in, in Europe, I, I only had one chance if I wanted to continue. So that's when I applied for these postdocs in these very high places, like one in NASA, one in, in JPL, which is another institution for astrophysics. And I got one of those, which is the one I ended up doing, knowing that was probably the last chapter of my career, because if I would have left before that, I could have never done a postdoc with NASA or with rocket science. And I kind of wanted to do it, not only to make sure that that was the thing I didn't want for my professional career, but also, uh, I mean, it's, it's a really good opportunity to be at the peak of your of your field. So I wanted to do it too. Yeah. Do you feel, so, you know, you mentioned uh doing the postdoc in part because it's also like sort of, it was the next step uh, mm-hmm. and you didn't want to not necessarily uh, take that step and see where it goes. Um, do you think there's some plasticity in leaving a science field and coming back more than um, maybe we appreciate? Or do you think it's pretty linear? Like you do have to be careful if you, if you step off that path uh, in academia, whether you can get back on or not. I mostly not. I don't think you can do that because there's so much pressure on publish, publish, publish. This is publish or perish, the slogan, which is basically, which drives people to to do low risk research because if you have a high risk research and it has a negative answer, you don't publish negative answers. It would be great if people publish, hey, I tried this and it didn't work. That would be a great tool for science. It's very rare that you see those things. So you need to publish, which leads to poor quality research. But also if you don't publish, if you get those uh, citations, those papers out there, then you have less chances to, to get a permanent position, which is the holy grail of the whole funnel of research is to get points so that you can get a, a position that is permanent. So I don't think it's possible to do that in your exact field, but I do think it's possible to change fields and maybe go out of research and come back, but not come back to where you were, but to come back with a new thread, which also values the things you did outside of research. So for example, maybe it's too late for me. I don't know if I wanted to do a research on AI, my experience in astrophysics would be like a, maybe a plus, but also my experience working with AI in the private sector, it is also a plus. So maybe I could 
could drive my career to research. But I would say it's it's even rarer, right? If it's rare to people to leave research, it's even rarer to leave the search and come back. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think especially once you get to a certain point. Um, I do see some folks who hesitate, uh, say right out of undergraduate, then going to grad school uh, to take time. And then then I think that that's a stage you can take time and go yes. to graduate school afterwards. Yes. Yes. I, I think past that point, it can be a, a, a little dicey. So what did you do after the, the Merzion Fellowship? And what did you do during the Merzion Fellowship? I was, uh, basically when you do the Merzion Fellowship, they assign you to a division. And in my case, it was the astronomy division. And one of the, the cool things the National Academies does is the cadal surveys. They basically start uh, a study of what are the next 10 years of a particular field. And, and that informs policymaking uh, NASA and other institutions of budget and things like that. So that was that was great. Besides that, you also get to see a lot of science policy in general as part of the program of the Mersayan. Um, so that's what I did there. I was helping the decadal survey for solar physics. Oh, so, so that's interesting. It sort of tied into what your background was in some yeah. way, but also moved you into a different different part of uh, the science process, the sort of the, the policy side. Yeah, I think it's it's by design. I would also, by intention, you should always try to pivot with a common point. In my case, it was solar physics changing from research to policy making. And then if we want to continue to pivot to policy, do policy, but in something else, making a, even if you know that you want to do one policy in health and you were an astrophysicist, it's really hard to make those pivots if you don't use common ground. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So what did you do after the fellowship? Um, that was, okay, I'll, I'll share the story. It's very embarrassing, but I hopefully helps those who are, who are doing research and then they want to do uh, non-traditional, so science non-research solutions. I wanted to do science. I didn't want to do research. I thought science policy was the thing. Then I discovered there's way more, many more things you can do that is science that is not research or policy. But I, I decided that science policy was the thing I wanted to do next. And I quit my postdoc after coming back to the Messiah, which obviously my advisor was not surprised, but also not happy about. And I didn't know how to do. I started to apply for jobs. I didn't have a visa and it was really hard. And I didn't have any job because of the visa or because I was a rocket scientist. I didn't, didn't need a rocket scientist. So after a lot of frustration on what to do, I decided in my naivete, and this is what is embarrassing, I said, I'm going to go to Africa. <laughs> I'm going to go to Africa to do to help with science policy. And because of my French was rusty and none of the countries there do um, uh, speak French, then I signed up for French classes. And, and just bear with me with a second because that's the story. I guess my idea was to go to help an NGO working on the ground in, in an African country to, to improve their science making process or how science can be applied for NGOs. I don't know. But I knew I wanted to do French. It so happened that Obviously, I was sharing my story of what I wanted to do with everyone. And a colleague at French class had a, um, an uncle who was starting an NGO on climate change. And I went to, and I said, oh, maybe I can work for that NGO. And I went and interviewed for that NGO. And again, they said, um, no, sorry, we are not interested in a, in a rocket scientist. So I couldn't do it. But the last week before I flew back to Spain, because I couldn't stay in the US anymore, they say, hey, would you... Like, this is the thing you're doing. We don't think you, I mean, maybe you can try doing something with this model. And obviously, 
with retrospect, a model of solar physics is much more complicated than a climate set model at the um, readiness of vulnerability level. It's basically a big Excel sheet with a lot of dimensions, but it's not that much complex as that. I believe, I truly believe anyone who has worked with, with uh, more complex models could do the job that I did, but I did it. And then that was, that was the point I broke through. That was the point I broke through because the NGO director who gave me an opportunity realized that my skills, not my knowledge, which is the key point I want to emphasize here. My value is not my knowledge. It's not I'm a walking Wikipedia, but I have skills and those skills could be applied. And I applied those to improve the model. And in basically a week, I had a full version of that model that had been struggling for long, obviously with the help of experts on climate change, we didn't know that, didn't have that knowledge. But talking with them, I knew the tools to combine those things to do the rankings they decided. And that moment they said, okay, you're in Spain, we're gonna hire you, come back to, to the US to work in this NGO. And that's the, that was the next step. But that was the step that broke free of the mold of being a researcher. Uh, oh, that's a fantastic story. I mean, so many pieces of it. One in particular that caught me was, you know, when you mentioned I was talking to uh, a friend's uncle and that happened to be running an NGO. Yeah. And I think you hear these kind of stories all the time where folks are like, well, this, this very specific thing just happened to happen to me. And then I found a way. But when you look at it, it's like, well, you're pursuing this interest, uh, maybe yeah. multiple interests. And that sort of lends itself to finding opportunities like that. Some would say it's luck. I don't yeah. think it's luck. It's that you're maximizing the roles of the dice of luck, if you want to put it. I spoke with everyone. I kept trying to do that. I thought friends could be interesting, so I went to friends. But also I was trying to figure out other things. I was bright, trying to write a book. I was trying to... I was trying many things. One of them happened to be the French one and the NGO. But if it would have been something else, that would have been the story and we would have called the other thing luck. So... I guess you need to prime your luck by rolling a lot of dice when you're in that state, which is confusing. It was hard. It was not an easy time because I didn't know what I wanted to do. The world was telling me I was doing the wrong thing and just didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew the direction more or less, but I didn't know exactly what to do. Yeah. And you mentioned the difference between knowledge and, and skill sets. Was that something you consciously realized the difference of then that you wanted, that, that was a, a thing that you had to offer or how did you come no, about that? It took me, it took me many years. Again, like I, I knew something was not right, but I didn't know what it was. I wanted something else, but I didn't know what that is. It's not that I, oh, I dream to be whatever this, and it's really hard to do. I didn't know what's the role of a scientist that is not a researcher. I genuinely didn't know. It was years, years, many years later, um, and we can talk about it through all of this experience that I had, that I realized that the, part of the key of to solve that puzzle is that my value is not my knowledge. My value is my skills, skills to make hypotheses, skills to split a big problem in small chunks, skills to, validate, skills to validate the hypothesis, mathematical skills, coding skills, um, basically understanding. I, I am trained to understand. And that's a training that not everyone has, that, that is not a scientist, but most people who are trained as scientists learn to learn, learn to understand. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, so after you sort of had this experience, this, this breakthrough, what, what did you decide to do next? I was, um, I was for the NGO for a couple of years and I loved it. It was a fantastic experience, many things I didn't know. 
about NGOs or climate change. And I learned because again, I was there for the skills and other people knew about actual climate change and adaptation, which is the thing I was doing. We hired a company to make our website and that company loved my capacity to have to speak at the general level, at the strategic level, but also be on the code. And they offered me a job. And I basically said no. But six months later, after the NGO moved to Indiana, to South Bend, and I, I helped move the NGO and the model and train the people, they, they convinced me, or basically I, I left the NGO to start with that company, which is Mapbox, a company that, that makes, or actually was Development Seed, and then Development Seed, which is the company that we hired to make the website, a spin-off or spoon-off the, the company to make maps, Mapbox. And I was the, from the beginning, basically, at Mapbox, which is the other, the next step of the career was two years at a literally garage in DC and working, like starting from like, I don't know, five people. And then when I left two years later, it was like, you know, 200 people started an yeah. office in San Francisco and doing everything. Like there's so many stories of craziness, so many stories of scrappiness, so many stories of, of like what it takes to build a company and to grow a company. It, I learned so much again from, from that phase. And that's fascinating. I did not appreciate that you were at Mapbox uh, as Mapbox formed. <laughs> yeah. And then through that huge growth process. That's, that's it was, amazing. it was, I, again, all of this chapter taught me things I didn't know. And I wish I knew. Like, for example, when I was in Mapbox, we had to hire people. And, I, and we wanted to hire people who knew science or scientists. But when I was interviewing scientists for these positions, I saw myself and saw the, the, the skills, the good things, but also the bad things, the handicaps we come. We learn a lot of good things, but we also learn things that are, just don't work in the private sector or especially in a startup. It's always okay, for example, in research, it's always okay to come back to the step number one. If you think the step number 10 was not good, come back to step number one. It's always okay to rethink principles and it's always okay to build properly. When you are in a private sector company, especially a startup, you have to deliver. If, we'll, if you can improve it, there will be time to improve it. But it's extremely important that you have a cadence and you have an estimation of when you can deliver something and then you can come back. That's a key change that you don't learn as a researcher because it's always okay to go back to the drawing board. And those kind of things I, I learned in that phase of my books, which is what is the things that make us as scientists not good in other fields? Um, and then reflecting back, also not good. Not all researchers are good explaining things. Not all researchers are good thinking about other issues. Like the world doesn't happen in ideal conditions. Research happens always by design in as ideal conditions as possible. So those are the kind of things I also learned in that phase. Yeah. Is there a advice, specific advice you give to say a scientist uh, interviewing in a, pub, a private or public sector, a non-academic job to, to mm, not take, not fall into those pitfalls of, of uh, that you're mentioning? There's a few and I'm happy to learn about those, but this like, I guess what the best way to see that is when you're hiding and you're on the other side of the table and then you, you, how did you cringe at how you thought it was and it's not. Like the person who is hiding has a lot of doubts and they has a little bit of time and has a ton of needs. So at least the way I hire, it's not my, your curriculum. I don't really 
it's nice to see that you have a degree. It's nice to see, to see you have your publications. And it's not to spend 20 times, maybe not so nice, knowing what your, your research was. But unless that research is specifically what you're going to be doing on day one, I am not that interested. I want to know. I want you to know what I need. And I, I want to know you have the skills to solve me, my needs on day one. I will, because I was, I'm a scientist, I know that you are a scientist and it means on day 10 or day 100, you will be much more powerful because you learn to learn and you learn to do many other things. But I need you to be useful on day one. That means the, the delivering on time, for example. That means, for example, do not focus on what's wrong or what needs to be improved. Scientists are extremely good at finding cracks, are extremely good to finding edge cases, are extremely good at finding ways where things can be improved. But often when you're trying to deliver something, you need the 80% that is okay. You need to know if it's good enough. And the search for excellence in research which is very understandable sometimes doesn't apply when you are in trying to deliver something. Those are kind of the few pointers of, I figure out the hard way, or when you're selling yourself, don't sell yourself as a researcher, sell yourself to the thing that that person needs. It's okay, you are not gonna dedicate your life to climate change, but you cannot tell to a climate change NGO that you are a rocket scientist. You should tell them, hey, I know how to do models. It's not denigrating yourself to a lower level or anything like that. You are much more than what you will be doing in that NGO and you will prove yourself and them that. But to get in the door, you need to basically solve their problems on day one. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Having also been on the, the hiring side um, and, and interacting with scientists in that context. And sometimes I want to say, um, we already know you're super smart. <laughs> like we don't need to know the, the details of, of the research. Um, but like you say, you know, the focus on um, what can you bring to the, the organization uh, and, and looking for seeing that you're looking to figure out what you can bring to the organization is important too. I totally agree. So I'm I'm curious what I know that after Mapbox you went to I believe you went directly to the World Bank is that right? Um yeah. and what what precipitated that and um I know uh, could you describe uh, some of the projects that you did at the World Bank? Yeah, I I left Mapbox 2 years later. It's funny because most of my career paths have been 2 years. Uh which is on the short side probably, but I'm proud to say that every team or company I work with, I've kept long lasting relations and I've found ways to figure out how to grow together, which in a way is a very scientific way of doing that thing. It's like, I want to help you. And then I want to find a way how I can make myself redundant so I can move to the next one. At least that was the thing I tried to do in, in some other ways. But anyway, with Mapbox, it was great. It was very intense and work and there's always, uh, the story is always like, complicated, but in essence, I basically realized that the next step for me was not um, continue at Babox, but continue that path of science to impact in society. Again, I was not a cartographer. I didn't want to be a cartographer, but Mapbox was an amazing opportunity. So, okay, I went full in with Mapbox and I love, I continue to love, I feel proud when I see a map online with the logo. It's, it's, I, it's, it's genuinely pride of having been part of that that um, company and that experience. But then I saw the opportunity at the World Bank. I basically saw the, the job posting and applied for it. And to my surprise, I got shortlisted and then I had to do a ton of paperwork and reference letters and blah, blah, blah. And I joined basically the innovation labs and how to use big data on all of these fancy data science, AI, all of these fancy things that were 
really useful in Silicon Valley, how to use that for development outcomes with development data in development environment, which is three, three things that do not happen in Silicon Valley. Like the data is, is worse, the environments are harder, and the outcome is not better optimization of ads or faster website is how can we know where to put the next school or which are the flood, the places in this city are gonna be flooded when, when it rains. So basically that's what we did at the world one. It was an extremely, again, uh, place to grow and have a ton of exposure of reality on the ground, working across the entire world one, traveling around the world and helping governments figure out how to use drones, how to use uh, analytics, how to use all of these things for those the socioeconomic development outcomes. Working across the institution, I work with, directly with the, with the president, Jim Kim, but also with me on the unit. It was, again, something that I loved and helped me figure out the things I didn't know before, which is what is the role of a scientist. In this case, it was being on the table when they are talking about potential things, you know how to do it, with AI and tell them, hey, this thing can be done better this way. Or they, when they think they can do something with AI, then, then actually it is much harder because of these reasons. So being in the table where things happen and offering your skills as part of the question that finds a solution. Did you find it, I'm, I'm actually curious, and when I think about it now, the size of say Mapbox versus then going to the World Bank, um, just in terms of dynamics uh, and the, the, I guess the culture and the, uh, speed at which things got done. Um, was that an adjustment at all? Oh yeah, very much. I, I totally burned out. I, um, when I left the world one, two years later, again, I was burned out. I, I hated the world bank and it was really hard because I wanted to do so much and I couldn't where my boss at the time at the world one, it was really good was he allowed me to do, to break a lot of stereotypes. We're an innovation labs. We did things that are seen unthinkable. We flew drones in Kosovo and for women's rights. So um, they, after the war, all the land titles disappear and then all the men were killed in this particular village. And then we're using drones to make quick mapping and to help women get the land title so that could have the ownership of this land. But if you think about it, you are flying drones over a war area uh, by the world one. It seems insane and there were many reasons we couldn't work. And to process the data, we had to buy gaming laptops because gaming laptops are the best ones to process data on the field uh, with the GPUs and all of those things. Those are crazy things we could do at the World Bank that were breaking a lot of rules in that sense, but we, had the space to do it. Still, I wanted to do much more. And still I wanted to do much faster, much more, um, and I couldn't. And there are reasons I couldn't. It took me a while to understand it. And I, I have a high respect to the World Bank. I continue to be, I was a consultant for many years later. I have really good relations with, with them. But coming from Mapbox, which is a small company, to the World Bank, which is one of the largest institutions in the world, Certainly, it's a change of pace. Certainly, it's a change of doing things, and it was a frustration on my side. Still, I'm proud of the, the of the work we did there, and I validated. It was like a piece of the puzzle. I validated what it means to be a scientist, not in research, by by using those skills. I remember, for example, one case where there was a paper on improving yields for farmers and how the leadership of the bank wanted to use this in a particular country in Africa. 
and I basically dig through the paper, understood the paper completely, and then realized that you could not deploy it in Africa for several mathematical and data reasons. It was because I was part of the team that I was able to reshape the project to be much more efficient that it that it would have been if there were no scientists on the team. That's interesting and also makes a great case for why you want scientists involved at various levels. Are there, I, um, for, for listeners, are there a ton of scientists at the World Bank plugged into all kinds of levels? I, I believe I was the first data scientist, the bank, the World Bank hired as such, which is crazy. I believe there are scientists in fields working on their fields, like scientists that are working on urbanization ended up working in, in the urbanization part of the World Bank. I do not think that the bank or pretty much any, almost any government in the world or institution with very few exceptions have this role, what I'm talking about. It's a scientist, not for the knowledge, but for the skill. It's someone who flies around or is is asked to be in different parts of the company to solve with the skills, not with knowledge. Yes, there are scientists working on urbanization in the World Bank, but I want that urbanization scientist to work on human development, to work on healthcare, to work on other things, because that's what is what we talk about, is the skills-based value of a scientist. Yeah, yeah. And I think oftentimes those jobs aren't advertised as for scientists in the first place to what you're saying, right? They, they, they're in need of that sort of analytical eye, but they're not necessarily called scientists. Indeed. Like when I joined the World Bank, uh, my PhD didn't count for experience. If my PhD would have been in economics or my PhD would be an urbanization, if it was an urbanization unit, it would have counted for my level or whatever these things. Because my PhD was in astrophysics, HR said that is not relevant. That is a huge problem. It's not yeah. a problem, I mean, it's not a criticism to the band, it's a criticism to the world that we should value those skills, but also we should make sure that those skills, that person knows how to use the skills. There are scientists who do not know how to do the skills outside of their knowledge area. And in that sense, I agree with the World Bank HR. But if you can prove that your skills are transferable and horizontal and you know how to practice those things, then you should value that. Yeah, yeah. otherwise it disincentivizes uh, people into that field. So. Yeah. And so after your time at the bank, I would describe your work as a bit of a being a digital nomad. How would, how would yes. you describe it? Um, it, it was... I, I've been so lucky and I've had so many experiences and unlikely experiences, but also trying to define my path. I was unhappy at the bank, as I said, because I wanted to do much more and I couldn't. And I also got the sense that doing development from DC um, missed part of what development means. I wanted like, like even the president of the World Bank says, you need math on your toes when you do development. You can learn other things, but you need to experience that. And I took the advice to heart and I left the bank and I started doing, uh, trying to do development from the ground. And I went to, I did some, so I went to South Africa and other places to to teach uh, data science, to apply the data science in those areas. And I also lived in Bhutan, helping um, as a social enterprise with those skills and trying to figure out how to improve their logistic systems and their harvesting systems. It was a hazelnut company. And that's what I did for um, basically traveling the world and living in very random places. Uh, also in the Balkans for also like three months uh, for 
quite a few years, maybe three years or so of traveling around the world doing that thing because I wanted, again, I, I got more and more clarity on that compass that was driving my world and I wanted to test it. So that's why I started to, to okay, if this is a thing and this is valuable, I'll do a consultancy of doing these things. And I will, I will do a consultancy sometimes for a lot of money. So that I, most of the times I could do it for free for the places that need it. And that's when I did the, the ones in, in Asia and the ones in, in in, in Bhutan or in Africa, in other countries and Latin America um, for proving the value of a scientist for the skills in helping um, in development outcomes. Why do you think, I think there's a, a theme in your work since you really, since you left uh, traditional science and it, it involves applying science to international development contexts. Why do you think that specifically pulls you or pulled you into to doing that kind of work? Um, I think it's a combination of a sense of moral duty in that sense of, I didn't grow up poor. I grew up in a middle uh, income uh, family, but I, I've seen enough poor and I've worked enough that every time I get closer to it, I feel we have a, it's one of the global challenges in the world. Like if we, um, if we were to list what are the biggest problems in the world, I would argue that poverty um, or hunger or lack of, lack of a baseline of opportunities is, is, a, is at the top. Or maybe climate change would be also there, or maybe biodiversity collapse could be one or there. But those things either have a strong underpinnings on science, like climate change or biodiversity collapse, or could be helped a lot by science like socioeconomic development. I do not think socioeconomic development solutions are just technology. There are many cases where science and other arguments would, would be face-to-face -face and you should not do science. I think there are many other arguments. You could be informed by science, but we could maybe religion is more important. Maybe caste flow is more important. Maybe diplomacy is more important. But there are other reasons, right? It's, I'm not saying that we should we just should do science, but I do believe that there are many global problems that could be helped by science, and that has been the the north of my of my life since I've discovered that indeed it was before I knew how to name it is how to apply science skills to the global problems of the world. Socioeconomic development is one of them and the World Bank is the fantastic place to do it. But also environmental solutions is, is a big one, not only climate change, but also biodiversity collapse. And Microsoft is now super engaged and committed to do that. So that's basically the common thread. I've changed a lot of jobs. I've never changed the type of job I do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And do you think like looking back at all that, that work, uh, which sort of uh, sings truest to your heart in, in, in attempting that goal of, of uh, using science to get at these big global problems? I don't know. I think I've been lucky. I've been so lucky to do so many things. And I, none of those so far have made me think, I want to do this for the next 30 years. I, I, maybe I'm a consultant at heart. I don't know, but I love the variety of things. I love to prove that, yes, we can help and then helping and figure out how I can I continue to help. So I'm, I've learned a lot in each of those places. Probably the socioeconomic development, helping people is very important. And also helping nature is 
is and will be more and more important for us. So I don't know, if I had to choose one, I guess helping people is, is really rewarding. So I, I guess the World Bank would be one of them that we put at the top. Yeah, yeah. And so I think um, to a lot of listeners, myself included, you know, you look at someone with your your profile and you see um, these many shiny bits and this this career with, um, you know, being at the World Bank, the PhD in astronomy, um, my, being at Microsoft now. And I think whenever it's, that's the case, it's easy for people um, to see the, the shiny bits strung out and look like it's a um, a, a very uh, easy and clear path. But uh, I think whenever any of us reflect on that, we know, we know we're all human. Um, so I was wondering if you could, you could share any times where you had self-doubt about your path or uh, it wasn't clear to you what to do next and sort of how you got through it. I've many times. Uh, I I believe I've only gained the security or I was like mental or moral or professional knowledge of what I want to do in the last maybe three years or so. I've always thought that I was doing was weird that I was that I was doing. Sometimes it it um, it seemed very obvious and sometimes it felt like crazy. Uh, and a lot of signals from the world tell you that you are doing the wrong thing. I remember when I was living in DC, I was I had a date, uh, the first date with a with a woman, and the the things he told me is like I was wasting people's money and tax money, and I doubled because I'm not doing the thing I was trained, which is research, and I was occupying the space of someone who knows better than me. Obviously, it was the last date I had with that person, <laughs> but that was a lot of doubt. Like my parents didn't recognize the value that I was going to do. Now I and they are proud, but when I quit. I quit NASA. It's crazy. I quit my postdoc assignment. I quit my staff position at the World Bank. I quit uh, rocketing and startup of Mambo's. It was, and I didn't know what to do in many of those cases. So yes, there were many shadows and there were many of uncertainty. How I dealt with those, I think one, you only know the story of the Bruno who in that sense managed it. And there's probably many more who failed at doing that. So I've not even recommended that what I did is a good idea. But it worked for me. How how did I do to maximize what I did is always trying to figure out. I didn't know what to do. And then I just thought about friends. And that's when I started to figure that out. So trying to find ways to go around the problems uh, or to get detours to do that, it helped a lot. I also struggled a lot with uh, happiness in the sense that I was professionally happy. I was traveling the world. I was great. I was personally quite unhappy because I didn't have a relation, a lasting sentimental relation for most of that time. And I, that bucket of my life was pretty empty. You know, I'm really happily married. I'm respecting a baby. So I am very, oh, very happy. <laughs> Thank you. And, but it took a while because I needed to find myself and what I wanted in life to them to be able to not only to offer something to that other person I want to share life with, but also to know what I want from life. The other bit that helps a lot is what I seem to see is called stoicism, which is this Greek philosophy, which is basically trying to find calmness in the adversity of life. And one of the things I did before it was something that the Stoics did is I always tried to love what I had to do and to be okay with the failure case. I was at NASA and I quit. And the failure case, I don't find a job. 
then what do I do if I don't find a job? Okay, I'll come back to Spain or start traveling the world, trying to figure it out. I was okay with that. So when it happened, it was great. If it wouldn't have happened, I would have been okay. And it puts you in a much better state to love what you do because it was, you are not living the failure. You're living an okay solution. So trying to be okay with the, with the option B or option C, at least for me, it has helped me go for option A full on, knowing that if it doesn't happen, B is not that bad. And it also sounds like, um, and maybe it's me projecting and, and relating to you, but uh, it also sounds like you've, in addition to to viewing what's 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 the worst that can happen and kind of thinking yeah. what that is, it's also a bit of being very honest with yourself about if that path you were on, uh, while while it was good while you were on that path, uh, might not be the perfect fit then, and to be willing to leave it behind uh, and yeah. go do that next thing. I think that's remarkable in your path too. Yeah, it's. I'm trying to be minimalist and trying to have little things and trying to not get used to niceties. It's also part of the stoicism I learned later. It's fascinating. I'm I'm super into stoicism because I see myself in the things I've done without without knowing it was stoicism. Like for example, I've flown business class and it was amazing. I've been in super fancy hotels, but I've also been literally sleeping on the floor in the mud floor in Bhutan and in other places or gone without food or, or struggling a lot. And I'm okay with both. And I don't want to be okay with business class only. I don't want to get to a quality of life that I need to do that. I have a comfortable life now. In the future, I might not. And it's going to be okay. Because it's not, this is not the important thing. The important thing is to do things like, I don't know if I will manage to do that because living nice is nice, (laughs) (laughs) but it's an aspiration. And if you are okay with that, it frees you to risk and it frees you to, to do things that otherwise you wouldn't do. And then you would ask yourself, I should have done that. I could have done that, but now I'm free and it's up to me to then make those decisions. I couldn't agree more. Um, so I, I usually ask this this last question uh, of folks to share a piece of advice or pep talk that they'd give uh, themselves if they were younger. But in your case, it's a little different. You, you've actually written a book <laughs> on this topic um, and specifically around encouraging scientists to uh, think about impact science. Um, and so could you could you talk a little bit about that book and also what motivated you to write it? Thank you, Krista, for asking about my book. <laughs> <laughs> No, exactly. It was, it's, as you said, I, I ask myself often or ask people ask me, what would you have told yourself when you were at the university in Oviedo? And it got to a point of like, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I would tell him that there is much more, but I don't know what that is. And as it got clearer, and especially when I left the world one, I basically decided to pursue this question and the answer to this question. And I flew around the world in between these consulting things, interviewing scientists who had been who are not researchers anymore, and and to make to literally, and that's what I put it on the book, make a book I would have liked to read when I was at university, for exactly the reasons. So that's the book. I everything needs a name, so I call that Impact Science, um, because it's not about data, data science, and it's not about research. It's about impact. So I called it Impact Science, and it's that idea of what is the value of a scientist based on the skills and what impact it can have on the world. And it tries to answer not only what to tell to a to a student, but also what to tell to a scientist who has done a postdoc and wants to go to the private sector. So there's like tips of talk about of the interviews, but also cases of global problems that 
were a success because science was part of the solution, of impact science was part of the solution, like um, the ozone layer and the problem with that. And I would argue COVID should be included in that book, <laughs> but also cases where we failed because we didn't use an impact science framework or like, for example, climate change, I would consider that a case of failure so far, or the um, when HIV AIDS was a problem, the science was disregarded for a long time and it cost a lot of human lives. So the book goes through some of these examples of the when it works and when it fails and also tries to help those considering solutions. And it's called Impact Science and it's available in Amazon if you wanna buy it. It's also available online if you wanna see it or if you need a, a copy, I'm happy to I'm happy to send you one. And we'll link to it in the podcast notes, but uh, I think it's it's the perfect book for listeners of this you, of this podcast. Um, and in truth, I I didn't uh, when inviting Bruno, I didn't even realize um, he'd written this book, and so the stars really aligned on on that one. Um, I wish I, I had this podcast when when I was a student. So thank you for making these ones. I see there's more and more people doing this, and we need those stories. And you not only tell the stories. I I heard already. At the time we're recording these two episodes of your podcast are available and I've heard both and I love not only the content, but also how you you go through the struggles and the personal stories of the people doing this. So thank you, Krista, for making this. Oh, no, no problem. It's definitely something I wish uh, I had heard when I was younger, which is which is what provoked me to doing it. So thank you. Um, and, and I think that's a good place to, to end our conversation. Uh, thank you so much, Bruno, for, for coming on. Really appreciated it. Thank you. And someone should interview you for your own podcast. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Degrees of Freedom. Go to exploredof.com to sign up and get notified for the next episode or subscribe to the program wherever you get your podcasts.